thank you, Yunyuk. Uh, yeah, sorry. I knew that one day you'd be a junior, so uh, <coughs> that's what I didn't mean. But yeah, sorry about that. Um, Want to kind of get us on the same page here with what's going on? We've, uh, if if you're new, we've been going through um, 27 weeks now. We're gonna, it's gonna take us right up until this year, Christmas. But we've been going through 27 weeks of of going through the Bible from the uh, beginning, from Genesis up, up until now. And the the main I, the the main thing I'm trying to communicate here is that the the Bible isn't a collection of a bunch of isolated stories with their own individual morals. Um, primarily, that's not what the Bible is. In fact, the Bible is a, <clears throat> it is a collection of, 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 of stories and of, of different people rising and falling, but there's one storyline that runs through all of it, and everything in the Old Testament um, up until the point of Jesus is leading us to see and is pointing us to this pinnacle who is Jesus Christ. And then after the time of Jesus, everything that's written is talking about this is what happens as a result of the life of Jesus. The way that um, one uh, person says, I think it's Brian Chappell says, everything in the Old Testament either prepares for Jesus coming or predicts Jesus coming. As we read things in the Old Testament, things should cause our mind to hearken forward and say, wow, that looks like the kind of life that Jesus would have lived. Everything in the New Testament flows from the life of Jesus. As a result of what Jesus has done, this is the kind of life we now have, and this is the kind of life we ought to live. So last week we got to this place where we looked at uh, the friendship between a future king named David and the son of the current king, Jonathan. <clears throat> and as we looked at that, we saw how that relationship pointed us forward to the great friendship that Jesus Christ offers to us, his people. But if you're reading the story closely, as maybe you did during the sermon, or <clears throat> if you went back afterwards and, and, and you read through it again, one of the things that you might have noticed was that in the friendship between David and Jonathan, it seemed to be like Jonathan was a better friend than David. Anyone get that as you're reading it? Anyone kind of? It was Jonathan who took off his tunic, his sword, his cloak, his robe, and gave all that to David. David was just receiving it. It was Jonathan who surrendered the potential succession to the throne and threw all of that onto David. It was he who risked his life and had a spear thrown at him for David's life. It was he who risked his life to put in a good word to a psychotic father who wanted to kill David. It was Jonathan who swore covenant to David, and at the end, when they knew that they would not see each other again, it explicitly says, but David wept the most, presumably because he is losing the most in this deal. And then one time where it says David swore an oath to Jonathan, it says he did so because Jonathan asked him to do that. That's what I get in my first reading of it. I don't know if you do as well. John, David did swear an oath to Jonathan. He said, I, I swear, I promise that I will be faithful and I will show kindness to your house for as long as I live. The question is, once Jonathan dies, okay, once Jonathan dies, will David be a faithful friend? And once Jonathan is dead, does that covenant that he made expire? Because, you know, when man and woman, when a husband and wife get married, they say, how long will I be faithful to you until death parts us? That's why we say, until death do us part. 
So Jonathan is dead. David is alive. He's promised an oath. Will he remain faithful? Right? This is what we have to look at. Today, it, this is probably one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I think it is a, it is a passage, a true story that's so full of, of passion and power and, and just content. It's, it's a beautiful thing. We're going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 9. But in between what happened last week with uh, the, the, the friendship of Jonathan and David up until this point in time, here's what's happened. At the end of 1 Samuel, at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul, the king, and Jonathan, his son, were killed in battle at the hands of the Philistines. So David is mourning the loss come 2 Samuel chapter 1. Now something else happens. In the midst of this, there's panic, there's craziness, because a civil war begins to break out between all those who are aligned and loyal to the house of Saul and all those who are faithful and and loyal and aligned with the house of David. So there's a civil war amongst the people of God. They're fighting each other. There are people who want Saul and his his line to continue to be king. And then there's some who want David and his line to continue to be king. Seven years of this back and forth are going on. And after seven years, David has finally secured the throne, right? He's united the hearts of all of Israel. And this is where we would get this idea that David is the greatest king that the people of God had ever known. So he's, he's, he's rescued them from all their enemies. They defeated the, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians. All of them have been, have been taken care of. The house of Saul no longer after David. He's won his battles. We get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and there is rest in the kingdom, finally. Big sigh of relief amongst the people of God. And so as we breathe this sigh of relief in the midst of this momentary rest, right, David begins thinking about his life. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, this is God's word. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always Eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. 
Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. This is God's word. So the question, will David remain faithful to the covenant of loyalty and kindness to Jonathan's household that he swore with Jonathan is answered in this first verse. David says in verse 1, Is there anyone left, still left of the house of Saul, to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So the short answer is yes, he's going to be faithful to the covenant that he made with Jonathan. He's going to be the friend that he swore he would be to Jonathan. But the word here, to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake, is repeated again in verse 3, anyone of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness. And again in verse 7, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Here's another Hebrew word. You've learned it before when Pastor Justin spoke about the message of Ruth. This is a word, kindness. It's not well translated, but it is the Hebrew word hesed. Can you guys say that? Hesed. It's actually chesed, but it's difficult to say. Um, H-E-S-E-D is kind of how you spell it. Some people spell it C-H-E-S-E-D. Hesed is the word. It means kindness here. It means loyalty, but it means more than just a human loyalty. It means a covenantal loyalty. It means a forever loyalty. It means a even after I die kind of a loyalty. In fact, this is the word that's used to describe the covenantal love that God has, a faithful love through any situation, through however dark the night gets, this is the loyalty and the faithfulness that God has. The hesed of God continues to show up through the Old Testament. And here David co-ops this word and uses it to talk about the kind of love that he will have for Mephibosheth. It's not just any kind of loyalty that David is showing here to his friend Jonathan then. This is a godly love a godly loyalty, a godly kindness. In fact, this is a kindness that is like God's kindness. Why? What's so great about this kind of a love? Right? Three thoughts. First thing, a king, the king. The king was faithful to a nobody. He's faithful to a nobody. He asked this question, is there anyone left? And there's a servant of Saul's household. So he'd been working with Saul for a long time, even after the king had died. And, and so there's a servant still there. David calls him and says, is there anyone left in, in Saul's house? And of all the things that he could have said, he could have said, uh, verse 3, second part of verse 3, Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He could have, said, he could have ended it there. He could have said, there's a grandson of Saul. There is a boy named Mephibosheth, but he goes on and he adds, he is crippled in both feet. What is he saying? There's still one left, but you don't really want him. There's there's still someone left, but he's a nobody. Second Samuel chapter 4 talks about what happened to young Mephibosheth. So after news broke out, again, civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David... The house of Saul is thrown into a little tizzy and they're running away because first of all, they're scared that the Philistines may attack them. Second of all, they're afraid that David may attack them. And so the the nurse of little Mephibosheth, 
okay, who's now an orphan because his dad and his grandfather, in one battle, they both died. So this little boy named Mephibosheth, he's about five years old. The nurse is picking him up so that they can run together to escape what could be their fate, ending in death. And as she's running, she trips and she drops Mephibosheth. And it says from that point on, his legs were crippled and he could not use them. In one moment, he went from the line of royalty. He went from royalty to a reject in one moment. He went from nobility to nobody in one moment's time. He was all potential and now he's nothing. Because the view of crippled people in those days was pretty terrible. They treated them awfully. They could never become king. In fact, we, it, I think our culture is getting better and better at dealing with people like Mephibosheth. But it wasn't long, that, long ago that people like him were treated with disdain and with discord and with, with, with hatred. There was, it was in the late 70s. Um, a guy was coming back from fighting in the Vietnam War. He was in San Francisco, and he called his parents, and he said, I'm, I'm coming home from, from war. And his parents were elated. They were super excited that he's coming back home. And he said, but I also wanted to tell you that I'm bringing home a friend. I want to bring home a friend. And, and they're like, yeah, he, that, that is fine. He's like, he fought in war with me. He just needs a place to, to settle in. And so the parents were, were, were happy about that. They're like, yeah, we'll be glad to take him in. We'll be glad to, to take him in, especially for what he did in, in fighting for the rights of other people. And so the, the, the son said, but I need to tell you something about him. He stepped on a mine in Vietnam and his leg and his arm were blown off. And, and so he needs a lot of help. So the mom said, well, um, son, I'm glad that you're, you're caring for him like this, but maybe just for a, a day he could stay with us and then we'll, we'll look for a place to live. Like, no, you don't understand. I want him to live with us. I want him to live with us, to be part of our, our family. And, and the mom said, no, you don't understand. And the dad said, you don't understand what you're asking. People like that are so hard to take care of. There's no way that we could do it. There's no way that you could do it. And so the boy said, but I, the son said, but this is, this is, my, this is my friend. And said, sorry, we can't, we can't take him in. We'll look for a place for him, but we can't take him in. And so they hung up the phone, and, and, and a few days went by. They hadn't heard from him. They got a phone call from the San Francisco Police Department. They said, we need you to come to San Francisco to identify a body. So they went over there, and as they, they went to the morgue, they opened up the body, and they saw the face of their son, and, and they recognized him, and they wept over him. But when they examined the body, they saw that he had only one arm and only one leg. Because this is how we have treated people in that situation, isn't it? His inability to be loved for who he is, even by his own parents, caused him to be in such despair that he took his own life. And it was far worse back in the ancient time of Israel and in the ancient Asian cultures. And it was a lot worse of a situation. And so here, Ziba says, well, there's still a son left, but he's crippled in both feet. You don't want him. And, and so David says, where is he? And he says, he's in the house of Makir in Lodabar. Lodabar, Amos chapter 6, verse 13, tells us that Lodabar means nowhere. He's in the middle of nowhere. Other places, it, it tells us it means no pasture. There's nothing there. It is a desert. 
What is low debar? The place where cripples like Mephibosheth go to live. What is low debar? The place where shameful people go in order to ride out their life without derision, without scorn, without people making fun of them. Where's low debar? It's where people from the previous line of royalty go to hide in order that the new regime wouldn't come and hunt them down and kill them, which is what they were supposed to do. Lodabar is in the middle of nowhere. It is like nowhere in Florida. There is no place for Lodabar here. It is a barren desert wilderness land. Nobody's going to live there. Jehovah's Witnesses don't knock on doors in Lodabar. Chinese people don't set up Chinese restaurants in Lodabar. There are no Starbucks in Lodabar. That's how out there it is. It's the middle of nowhere. Lodabar is where Mephibosheth lives where people like him go to live, where people like him go to die. It's unknown, anonymous. Just a a crippled boy in both feet in the middle of nowhere. And so David, (laughs) when he asked Ziba, you got anybody left? Like there's one left, but he's out there. And immediately, David, he's like, I've heard that before. When Samuel goes to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, he says, don't you have anyone left? Jesse says, I've got one, but you don't want him. He's out in the desert, in the wilderness. And so David understands what Mephibosheth is dealing with. And so he says, well, get up, go get him. So 50 miles, he sends his people. Nobody goes out to Lodabar. And so when the few inhabitants of Lodabar see the king's chariots coming, they know who they're coming for. They're coming for Mephibosheth, and they know why they're coming for him. Because the line of royalty always kills the family members of the previous king so that there would be no coup, there would be no uprising. Everyone knows this is Mephibosheth, and he knows that too. Which is why when he goes to greet David, he falls down at his feet, he bows down, and David says, the first thing he says is, don't be afraid. Because the one thing Mephibosheth deserved above all else was he deserved to die. That's it. So look at Mephibosheth's self-awareness. Verse 8, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? This is not Korea where a dead dog today is a soup delicacy tomorrow. This is, not, this is not what he's talking about. When he says a dead dog, de- dogs in those days were not domesticated. They're not played like little pets like <coughs> Snoopy or Scooby-Doo or any of the pets, the dogs that we know of today. Right? Dogs were rodents. They were like oversized rats. Nobody liked them. And when you call yourself a dead dog, you're saying not only am I worthless, but I'm disgusting and I'm despicable at that. And so what Mephibosheth is saying, that why have you called me? I'm completely worthless. And in David showing kindness and faithfulness to Mephibosheth, he is showing his faithfulness, kindness, loyalty to a nobody. But we go on. The second thing that we see is that the king's faithfulness turned a nobody into a somebody. A nobody into a somebody. 
David says, don't be afraid. And then look at what he says. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. What's happening here? What did Mephibosheth deserve? Do you know this? Because we just said it. He deserved to die. That's all he deserved. That's, all, that's the only thing he deserved. But in being spared, he has already received infinitely more than he could ever have deserved. This, my friends, is called mercy. And herein we see this great interplay between mercy and grace. Mercy is when we are with, is with, when what is withheld, when we are spared from that which we deserve. Mephibosheth should have been killed. He was not killed. He received mercy. But even more than that, he is now about to receive an overflowing, a scandalous amount of grace and kindness and favor that he never would have imagined. Look at what it says, verse 7. He says, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Okay, the first thing that he's getting, all of this land that belonged to the king is being given to Mephibosheth. He's got all of this land. What's more, verse 9 he summons Ziba. He says, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Then he goes on, verse 10, you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him, bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. Can you, this, is, this is ridiculous amounts of grace to a dead crippled dog who's just de- destined, and that was his lot. He's just going to die out here in Lodabar, in the middle of nowhere. But all of a sudden, he's getting the land that belonged to the king. He's got servants, like 30 of them, working the land for him, bringing it in cross. He will always be provided for. But the greatest thing, he says this four times in verse 7, you will always eat at my table. Verse 10, Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Verse 11, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Verse 13, he always ate at the king's table. You get the point here that eating at the king's table was something significant that people needed to understand. Why is it so big a deal that he's eating at the king's table? Because, you know, every king had a table. Every king had a table. You hear the famous uh, legend of, of King Arthur in London, and in England rather, and he had his knights of the round table, presumably a round table. There's no head. We're all equals with each other. These were the greatest of knights, Lancelot, Galahad, Sir Gawain, all of the greatest fighters in England sat around the table of King Arthur because every king had his table, and the same was true of David. At his table, 2 Samuel 23, it talks about probably the people that sat around this table. It says David had 30 mighty men who would risk their lives for him. Some of them, it says they beat a, a giant Egyptian. Some of them beat hundreds of foreign army men by themselves with their sword. Others of them beat animals. And these were the mighty men who sat around David's table because they were the picture of honor in the kingdom of God. They were the ones who protected the king's rights. They were the ones who protected the king. If anyone tried to assassinate King David, he would have his mighty men sitting at his table. And yet it says four times in this short chapter, four times it says Mephibosheth always ate 
at David's table. This uh, last week I was watching um, on, on YouTube, someone pointed out to me, I saw the 100th ever episode of Extreme Makeover, the home edition. There was this little clip that um, I was, uh, was brought to my attention. I was watching this. The stories are this, this uh, seven-year-old girl named Taylor. Taylor was in the car when her father got into a car accident and her dad passed away. Some years later, I think it was like uh, five years later, she and her three siblings were at home with her mother and her boyfriend, mother's boyfriend. They were sleeping when there was a knock on the door and her mother's psycho ex-boyfriend came to the door and shot her mother and her mother's boyfriend. And when word got around from the hospital that neither of them were going to survive, Taylor immediately said, who's going to take care of us? Where are we going to live? What's our future going to look like? And in that moment, her aunt and uncle, mother's sister and brother-in-law, adopted these four children into their home. But they had four children of their own. So it's a family of 10 living in this little house. And so the 100th episode ever, they had eight families that had been on Extreme Makeover Home Edition in previous episodes all come and they helped in the building of this 5,600 square foot home. And over seven days, like they always do, they built this home for them. And as they stood outside of the house with all the people cheering, the host, Ty, said to Taylor, he says, this marks a new beginning for you. Hopefully, from this point forward, all of the bad things that have happened can be forgotten and you can begin building good memories in this home. He says, you ready to go in? And he sends them in and they walk in and they just start bawling. They just look at the home and the first place they go is they go to the dining room. That's where Taylor went. And Ty's like, come over here. Mom is like, look at where we're going to eat this massive table and around the table were 10 chairs and Ty says to Taylor, who's just weeping, he says, why is this so important to you? And she said, I always saw mealtime as a time for our family to bond, but there were never enough chairs around the table. And if family can't sit together, then how can we bond? Because now that we could all sit around the table, I feel like I belong. I finally feel like I'm part of the family. The first time Mephibosheth feels like I belong somewhere. But maybe it, it says at the end of verse 11, not only did he eat at David's table, it says, like one of the king's sons. These people, as Mephibosheth for the first time sits down at the table, he's looking across and he sees guys like Uriah the Hittite, mighty warriors. He sees these massive, hulking, strong, good-looking men. And then he looks at himself. He's like, what in the world am I doing here? But here's the amazing thing about the king's table. That when Mephibosheth sat at the table to eat, 
the grace of the table, the lavishness of the table covered over him so that no one could see the crippled legs upon which he sat. All of his shame wiped away. All of his past, all of his brokenness completely covered by the love of another so that when he looked across the table and he saw these strong, beautiful men, he said, I'm just like them. I'm part of the family of the king. This nobody has become a somebody because of the fierce loyalty that David had. Last thing we see then, last thing. The king's faithfulness made a nobody into a somebody because of his connection with somebody. It was because of his connection with somebody. When people ask him in their private moments, here goes these mighty men of David, pull David aside, say, hey, king, with all due respect, why is that guy here? Why is he here with us? And the same thing that David said to Mephibosheth in verse 1 is what he would say to them. He said, I'm showing him kindness for Jonathan's sake. The reason why Mephibosheth could be treated with royalty like royalty, like a son of the king, is because of David's love for another. And because of Jonathan's relation, because of Mephibosheth's relationship to another. Jonathan. You know that in this life, it's all about connections, right? Like, um, I don't think any of us would argue that probably the greatest basketball player in history is Michael Jordan, right? The greatest of all time, the GOAT, right? The greatest of all time. If not of all time, he's the greatest of our generation, right? Michael Jordan. Everyone would agree, right? Maybe someone would beg to differ. But for all intents and purposes, that's what the great majority of people would dare to believe. So here's Michael Jordan, um, six NBA championships, six titles, right? That's great. They talk about LeBron being the next Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant being the next Michael Jordan, uh, Kevin Durant being the next Michael Jordan. But it, in order for them to be named in the same breath, did you talk about this already? To be mentioned in the same breath as Michael Jordan, they, it's not about being an MVP. It's not about being a scoring title, a scoring champion. You need to have the ring. You need to have a championship ring. And so I think it was in, in 1989 or something like that. During the draft, the, the, the Bulls were not very good, so they had the sixth pick. And Michael Jordan said, I want to pick, I really want you to pick this forward out of Oklahoma named Stacy King. There were other guys available. Tim Hardaway, really good player. Nick Anderson played for the Magic. Sean Kemp also played for the Magic, but he was good with another team. There were all these good players. But Michael Jordan said, hey, I want this guy. I want Stacy King. And so the Bulls picked him because Michael was a the man. They picked Stacy King, and Stacy King was the man. He was a stud in college. But when he went to the NBA, he was not. Here's a, here's a glimpse of how he was when he went to the NBA. His rookie year, he got into one game. I forget who. I think they were playing the Cleveland Cavaliers. And this was Michael Jordan's great game where he scored 69 points, 18 rebounds, 6 assists. Stacy King got in the game, played 17 minutes, and he made a free throw, one free throw, one free throw. 17 minutes, one point. You could accidentally score one point. Right? This is not good. 
So he scores one point from the free throw line in 17 minutes. Doesn't do anything else. And so he's sitting in the locker room. They're all out talking about, oh, this great game, Michael Jordan. And then they're like, Stacy, hey, one point. <laughs> Pretty good, huh? So they're kind of like ribbing him. And he gets the microphone. And he says, I will always remember the night that Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points. <laughs> this was Stacy King. True tribute to teamwork. We did it together. If it wasn't for Stacy King, they wouldn't have hit 70 together. I mean, that's just the reality. But this is Stacy King, kind of a scrub. Four and a half seasons, he played with the Bulls. Not even five, four and a half seasons before he got let go and sent to another team. In four and a half seasons, he won three NBA championships. Three. That is more than the combined total of John Stockton, Steve Nash, Carl Malone, Patrick Ewing, Dominique Wilkins, Reggie Miller, who wasn't very good, but I just put him in there for, for, for more than all of these people combined, Tracy McGrady. Yet no one ever mentions Stacey King in the list of greatest NBA players. Why? How is it that a scrub like Stacey King could climb the highest peak in NBA, just the, the, reach the pinnacle of it all? Not because he was any good but because he was chosen by Michael because of his connection with another. Our world revolves around connections. It's not about what you know now. It's about who you know. Every job, right? Sometimes, a lot of times, you've been there. Someone unqualified gets a job instead of you who are more qualified because they had a connection with another. And they say, how did this, how did Mephibosheth? And, and, and just to be clear, the, 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 the author, the narrator of 2 Samuel chapter 9 makes it clear at the end, just in case you forgot, he sat at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. To lead all of us to wonder why in the world would this undeserving person sit at the table of the king. And then we see it's because of his relationship with another. Why is it that this passage is so powerful? And why is it that David says, I will show Hesed, covenant loyalty? Because Mephibosheth is me. Because Mephibosheth is you. Because we were all crippled in a fall, into sin. We who were once the beautiful image of God, royalty in a moment falling into sin and became nobodies in this world, living in the midst of Lodabar. But the king, Jesus left his palace and he came looking for us in the middle of nowhere when we were out there, when there was nothing that had us looking for God. We were broken and we were jacked up. Everyone said, there they are, the loser, the loner, the cripple in the middle of nowhere. That's them. And when we looked at ourselves, that's all we saw. I'm just a dead dog. What do I have to offer? And so when the king calls us, we're like, please, we deserve to be killed because we did nothing but rebel against the holy God. But when we come before the king, 
He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because for the sake of another, I will look with hesed, covenant loyalty and kindness over your life. And when you sit at the table, all of your shame is going to be covered over. You know, Mephibosheth, the reality was he was still broken. But when people looked at him, they didn't see that. It's the same with us. We can look at ourselves and realize how broken we are, how messed up we are, how undeserving we are. But still in the presence of the king, we can find ourselves being covered over by robes of righteousness so that our sin and our shame is seen no more. That's why we can say, here I am at your feet like Mephibosheth did. In my brokenness, I can still be broken, but I can still find myself complete. And the only place I can find myself complete is in the presence of my king who looked upon another. And because of my relationship with another, I could be spared. It's not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. Not because of who we are, but because of what he's done. You hear this on the radio, don't you? That's why we have been chosen by God. And when we get every first of every month, we gather together at this table. We're a bunch of misfits like you and I gather. It's not because we've done it right. Not because we look good. Not because we wear clean clothes. We come jacked up, messed up, broken. It's a table of grace because Jesus says, I've been broken for you in your stead. That's why you can come. That's why you come. And every time we hear the body of Christ broken for your brokenness, the blood of Christ spilled where your blood should have been spilled, we realize that I'm only here because of the grace of God. And this table that we come to the first of each month, the communion table, the Lord's Supper, is a reminder that one day when we get to the other side of glory, there will be another table. And like Taylor understood in Extreme Makeover, that table is going to be huge and we can all fit there. And at that table, all of our brokenness will one day forever and ever and ever, forever and ever be wiped away. And when we get to heaven, the first thing that's going to shock us is, wow, there are people here that I never expected to be here. All those who by grace draw near. The second thing that's going to shock us is, man, I thought there were people who were going to be here who aren't here. Because they thought they could do it on their own instead of throwing themselves upon the grace of another and putting their trust in him. And the third thing that's going to amaze us is that we are there at all. We sit around that table. We look at Mephibosheth. Sit around that table. We look at the king, David. Sit around that table. We look at people that we never expected to be there. See, the beauty of Jesus rise up with nail-pierced hands. Saying, all this you have because of another. It's a table where nobodies have become somebody. Only because of our connection to the great somebody. For every one of us, right, every one of us, Again, there will be people there that we never expected to be there. There will be people who expected to be there. We expect to be there who aren't there. Here's what Jesus says. He says, as he did unload the bar, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door and welcomes me in, and I'll dine with them forever and ever. It's the promise, the Hesed promise, the covenant promise of a faithful and undyingly loving God. Let's pray together.
My friends, the story of Mephibosheth is a story of every blood-bought child of God. But the story of Mephibosheth is a story of grace only for people that understand that they need grace. For people who think that they have something to offer the king, like the Pharisees did in Jesus' time. Jesus says, I don't know who you are because you didn't recognize that you needed me. You thought you could do it on your own. The kingdom of God's doors are wide open to those who recognize their need for a savior. All of us will be called into account one day. So as we reflect upon the scandalous mercy, the ridiculous grace of God, if you're a child of God, let's offer our gratitude and thanksgiving and prayer to him. And maybe some of us in here have not yet put our trust in Jesus. You are in Lodabar, and the king has come to you today. saying, will you come with me? Will you let me be your king? If you do, I'll sit you at my table. I'll restore all that was lost, and I'll put you into service, the service of the king. You've got to make that choice. It's not for those who follow from a distance. It's those who put all of their trust in Jesus. After we pray for about a minute, I'm going to give an invitation for those of us in here who feel like, yeah, you know what? I need Jesus in my life. I need to go with the king. Not just pray a prayer, but I need to follow him now. I need to follow him and go where he leads me. So I might sit as a son, as a daughter, the true king. Let's pray for a little bit, and then in a moment, I'm going to ask if there's anyone like that who wants to put their trust in Jesus and give their heart to him. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand, and then we'll, all of us will pray together with our eyes closed. But for a minute or so, let's just pray right now, just asking the Lord, thanking him for grace, for mercy, for love, for kindness, for scandalous love that he showed to nobodies like us. Let's pray together. In a, in a minute, I'll come up and give an invitation again. Let's pray. There's people in here, maybe someone in here just feels like, yeah, I need, I need to, I need to be connected to Jesus so that he could make me into a somebody so that I could have a place at his table in eternity, that I could be a part of the family of God. I could be a child of God. He paid the price on the cross when he died for you and for me, shedding his blood for our sins to cover up our brokenness in order that we, through trusting him, might have life, eternal life, but that begins a moment we believe, a new kind of a life that he offers to us. His presence goes with us, his peace, his joy, his love. And so as we close our eyes to pray, if there's anyone like that, um, you just raise your hand where you are, and I'm not going to call you out or anything like that, but you just feel like, hey, I need Jesus, can raise your hand, and then we'll, we'll pray a prayer together, all of us. You feel like, yeah, this is for me. Okay, thank you. 
sister in the back and one in the front here. Thank you. There's a couple people in here. Just They want to find their identity in Jesus, not in their brokenness, not in their past. Anyone else? I need Jesus in my life. I'm going to pray on our behalf. And as you hear this prayer, especially for the two who raised their hand and maybe others in here who feel like this resonates with them, it's going to offer this prayer and then you can make it your own. But these are the things that you need to believe in order to, what the Bible says, to be a child of God. Father in heaven, I thank you that you saw me when I was in the middle of nowhere. Thank you that you saw me when I was a crippled mess. Maybe my life had been crippled by my own choices. Maybe my life had been crippled by the failures of others. But I know that I need a Savior. I know that I too have messed up. And I want to become a child of God. I believe that You died for me, Jesus, on the cross to cover my shame, to restore me from all that was broken and to heal me from my past. I believe you died on the cross for me to forgive me of all of my sins, past, present, and future. And I believe that in your wisdom and power, you can lead me to be the man or woman that you want me to be. Come into my heart and come into my life. Help me to be a child of God that honors you. I gladly delight in you and I sit at your table so that I could experience intimacy with you. Would you now be my Savior and be my Lord both here and forevermore? Help me to be who you want me to be. And for all of us in here, loving God, we pray that you would continue to amaze us with your grace. We thank you that the message of Christianity is not about what we need to do to get to you, but it's about you who came to us wherever we were, and you rescued us, and you freed us, and you saved us. Thank you for that grace. Thank you for that mercy. I love you because you have loved me first, and in loving a nobody, you have made me a somebody. May my life forever be changed by you. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name I pray.